Chapter One of The Pharaoh and the Priest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. The Pharaoh and the Priest by Boleslaw Proust. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin. Chapter One. In the thirty-third year of the happy reign of Ramses the Twelfth, Egypt celebrated two festivals which filled all its faithful inhabitants with pride and delight. In the month of Mechir, that is, during January, the god Khonsu returned to Thebes covered with costly gifts. For three years and nine months he had travelled in the country of Bukhtan, where he restored health to the king's daughter, Bentres, and expelled an evil spirit not only from the royal family, but even from the fortress. So in the month Farmuti, February, Mer Amen Ramses Twelfth, the lord of Upper and Lower Egypt, the ruler of Phoenicia and nine nations, after consultation with the gods to whom he was equal, named as Erpeter, or heir of the throne, his son, aged twenty years, Chomsem Mer Amen Ramses, this choice delighted the pious priests, the worthy nomarchs, the valiant army, the faithful people, and every creature living in Egypt, because the older sons of the pharaoh, who were born of a Hittite princess, had been visited by an evil spirit through enchantments which no one had the power to investigate. One son of twenty-seven years was unable to walk after reaching maturity. The second opened his veins and died. The third, through poisoned wine, which he would not cease drinking, fell into madness, and believing himself a monkey, passed whole days among tree branches. But the fourth son, Ramses, born of Queen Nicotris, daughter of the priest Amenhotep, was as strong as the bull Apis, as brave as a lion, and as wise as the priests. From childhood he surrounded himself with warriors, and while still a common prince, used to say, If the gods, instead of making me the youngest son of his holiness, had made me a pharaoh, like Ramses the Great, I would conquer nine nations, of which people in Egypt have never heard mention. I would build a temple larger than all Thebes, and would rear for myself a pyramid near which the tomb of Cheops would be like a rose-bush at the side of a full-grown palm-tree. On receiving the much-desired title of heir, the young prince begged his father to be gracious and appoint him to command the army corps of Memphis. To this his holiness, Ramses Twelfth, after consultation with the gods, to whom he was equal, answered that he would do so in case the heir could give proof that he had skill to direct a mass of troops arrayed for battle. A council was called under the presidency of the minister of war, San Amen Herhor, high priest of the great sanctuary of Ammon in Thebes. The council decided in this way. The heir to the throne, in the middle of the month of Mesor, will take ten regiments, disposed along the line which connects Memphis with the city of Paiuto, situated on the bay of San Benico. With this corps of ten thousand men prepared for battle, provided with a camp and with military engines, the heir will betake himself eastward along the high road from Memphis toward Hittite regions, which road lies on the boundary between the land of Goshen and the wilderness. At this time General Nitager, commander of the army which guards the gate of Egypt from attacks of Asiatic people, will move from the bitter lakes against the heir, Prince Ramses. 
Both armies, the Asiatic and the Western, are to meet near Pi Balos, but in the wilderness, so that industrious husbandmen in the land of Goshen need not be hindered in their labors. The heir will be victorious if he does not let himself be surprised by Nitager, that is, if he concentrates all his forces and succeeds in putting them in order of battle to meet the enemy. His worthiness, Herhor, the minister of war, will be present in the camp of Prince Ramses and will report to the pharaoh. Two ways of communication formed the boundary between the land of Goshen and the desert. One was the transport canal from Memphis to Lake Timrah. The other was the high road. The canal was in the land of Goshen, the high road in the desert, which both ways bounded with a half-circle. The canal was visible from almost every point upon the high road. Whatever artificial boundaries might be, these neighboring regions differed in all regards. The land of Goshen, though a rolling country, seemed a plain. The desert was composed of limestone hills and sandy valleys. The land of Goshen seemed a gigantic chessboard, the green and yellow squares of which were indicated by the color of grain and by palms growing on their boundaries. But on the ruddy sand of the desert and its white hills, a patch of green or a clump of trees and bushes seemed like a lost traveler. On the fertile land of Goshen, from each hill shot up a dark grove of acacias, sycamores, and timorins, which from a distance looked like our lime trees. Among these were concealed villas with rows of short columns, or the yellow mud huts of earth tillers. Sometimes near the grove was a white village with flat-roofed houses, or above the trees rose the pyramidal gates of a temple, like double cliffs, many colored with strange characters. From the desert beyond the first row of hills, which were a little green, stared naked elevations covered with blocks of stone. It seemed as if the western region, sated with excess of life, hurled with regal generosity to the other side flowers and vegetables, but the desert in eternal hunger devoured them in the following year and turned them into ashes. The stunted vegetation, exiled to cliffs and sands, clung to the lower places until, by means of ditches made in the sides of the raised high road, men conducted waters from canals to it. In fact, hidden oases between naked hills along the highway drank in the divine water. In these oases grew wheat, barley, grapes, palms, and timorins. The whole of such oasis was sometimes occupied by one family, which, when it met another like itself at the market in Pi Balos, might not even know that they were neighbors in the desert. On the 15th of Mesor, the concentration of troops was almost finished. The regiments of Prince Ramses, which were to meet the Asiatic forces of Nitager, had assembled on the road above the city of Pi Balos, with their camp and with some military engines. The heir himself directed all the movements. He had organized two parties of scouts. Of these the first had to watch the enemy, the other to guard its own army from attack, which was possible in a hilly region with so many ravines. Ramses, in the course of a week, rode around and examined all the regiments, marching by various roads, looking carefully to see if the soldiers had good weapons and warm mantles for the night hours, if in the camps there was dried bread in sufficiency, as well as meat and dried fish. He commanded, besides, that the wives, children, and slaves of warriors marching to the eastern boundary should be conveyed by canal. This diminished the number of chariots and eased the movement of the army. 
the oldest generals admired the zeal knowledge and caution of the heir and above all his simplicity and love of labor his court which was numerous his splendid tent chariots and litters were left in the capital and dressed as a simple officer he hurried from regiment to regiment on horseback in a syrian fashion attended by two adjutants thanks to this concentration the corps itself went forward very swiftly and the army was near Pybalos at the time appointed it was different with the prince's staff and the greek regiment accompanying it and with some who moved military engines the staff collected in memphis had the shortest road to travel hence it moved latest bringing an immense camp with it nearly every officer and they were young lords of great families had a litter with four negroes a two-wheeled military chariot a rich tent and a multitude of boxes with food and clothing also jars full of beer and wine besides a numerous troop of singers and dancers with music had betaken themselves to journey behind the officers each woman must in the manner of a great lady have a car drawn by one or two pair of oxen and must have also a litter when this throng poured out of memphis it occupied more space on the highway than the army of prince rameses the march was so slow that the military engines which were left at the rear moved twenty-four hours later than was ordered to complete every evil the female dancers and singers on seeing the desert not at all dreadful in that place were terrified and fell into weeping to calm these women it was necessary to hasten with the night camp pitch tents arrange a spectacle and a feast afterward the night amusement in the cool under the starry sky with wild nature for a background pleased dancers and singers exceedingly they declared that they would travel thenceforth only through the desert meanwhile prince rameses sent an order to turn all women back to memphis at the earliest and urged the march forward his dignity herhor minister of war was with the staff but only as a spectator he had not brought singers himself but he made no remarks to officers he gave command to carry his litter at the head of the column and accommodating himself to its movements advanced or rested under the immense fan with which his adjutant shaded him herhor was a man of forty and some years of age strongly built concentrated in character he spoke rarely and looked at people as rarely from under his drooping eyelids he went with arms and legs bare like every egyptian his breast exposed he had sandals on his feet a short skirt about his hips an apron with blue and white stripes as a priest he shaved his beard and hair and wore a panther skin hanging from his left shoulder as a soldier he covered his head with a small helmet of the guard from under this helmet hung a kerchief also in blue and white stripes this reached his shoulders around his neck was a triple gold chain and under his left arm a short sword in a costly scabbard his litter borne by six black slaves was attended always by three persons one carried his fan another the mace of the minister and the third a box for papyrus this third man was pentuer a priest and the secretary of herhor he was a lean ascetic who in the greatest heat never covered his shaven head he came of the people but in spite of low birth he occupied a high position in the state this was due to exceptional abilities 
Though the minister with his officials preceded the staff and held himself apart from its movements, it could not be said that he was unconscious of what was happening behind him. Every hour, at times every half-hour, someone approached Herhor's litter, now a priest of lower rank, an ordinary servant of the gods, a marauding soldier, a freedman, or a slave, who, passing as it were indifferently by the silent retinue of the minister, threw out a word. That word Pentur recorded sometimes, but more frequently he remembered it, for his memory was amazing. No one in the noisy throng of the staff paid attention to these details. The officers, sons of great lords, were too much occupied by running, by noisy conversation, or by singing, to notice who approached the minister, all the more since a multitude of people were pushing along the highway. On the 16th of Mesor, the staff of Prince Ramses, together with his dignity the minister, passed the night under the open sky at the distance of five miles from the regiments which were arranged in battle order across the highway beyond the city of Pi-Balos. In that early morning which precedes our six o'clock, the hills grew violet, and from behind them came forth the sun. A rosy light flowed over the land of Goshen. Villages, temples, palaces of magnets, and the huts of earth-tillers looked like sparks and flames which flashed up in one moment from the midst of green spaces. Soon the western horizon was flooded with a golden hue, and the green land of Goshen seemed melting into gold, and the numberless canals seemed filled with molten silver. But the desert hills grew still more marked with violet, and cast long shadows on the sands, and darkness on the plant world. The guards who stood along that highway could see with the utmost clearness fields, edged with palms, beyond the canal. Some fields were green with flax, wheat, clover. Others were gilded with ripening barley of second growth. Now earth-tillers began to come out to field labor, from huts concealed among trees. They were naked and bronze-hued, their whole dress was a short skirt and cap. Some turned to canals to clear them of mud or to draw water. Others, dispersing among the trees, gathered grapes and ripe figs. Many naked children stirred about, and women were busy in white, yellow, or red shirts, which were sleeveless. There was great movement in that region. In the sky birds of prey from the desert pursued pigeons and daws in the land of Goshen. Along the canal squeaking sweeps moved up and down, with buckets of fertilizing water. Fruit-gatherers appeared and disappeared among the trees, like colored butterflies. But in the desert, on the highway, swarmed the army and its servants. A division of mounted lancers shot past. Behind them marched bowmen in caps and petticoats. They had bows in their hands, quivers on their shoulders, and broadswords at their right sides. The archers were accompanied by slingers who carried bags with missiles and were armed with short swords. A hundred yards behind them advanced two small divisions of footmen, one division armed with darts, the other with spears. Both carried rectangular shields. On their breasts they had thick coats, as it were armor, and on their heads caps with kerchiefs behind to ward off the sun rays. The caps and coats had blue and white stripes, or yellow and black stripes, which made those soldiers seem immense hornets. Behind the advance guard, surrounded by a retinue of mace-bearers, pushed on the litter of the minister, and behind it, with bronze helmets and breastplates, the Greek companies, 
whose measured tread called to mind blows of heavy hammers. In the rear was heard the creaking of vehicles, and from the side of the highway slipped along the bearded Phoenician merchant in his litter borne between two asses. Above all this rose a cloud of golden dust, and heat also. Suddenly from the vanguard galloped up a mounted soldier, and informed Herhor that Prince Ramses, the heir to the throne, was approaching. His worthiness descended from the litter, and at that moment appeared a mounted party of men who halted and sprang from their horses. One man of this party and the minister began to approach each other, halting every few steps and bowing. "'Be greeted, O son of the Pharaoh! May he live through eternity,' said the minister. "'Be greeted and live long, O holy father,' answered Ramses. Then he added, "'Ye advance as slowly as if your legs were sawn off, while Nategor will stand before our divisions in two hours at the latest.' Thou hast told truth, thy staff marches very slowly. Yunana tells me also, here Ramses indicated an officer standing behind him who was covered with amulets, that ye have not sent scouts to search ravines. But in case of real war an enemy might attack from that side. I am not the leader, I am only a judge, replied the minister quietly. But what can Patrocles be doing? Partrocles is bringing up the military engines with his Greek regiment. But my relative, an adjutant, Tutmosis? He is sleeping yet, I suppose. Ramses stamped impatiently and was silent. He was a beautiful youth, with a face almost feminine, to which anger and sunburn added charm. He wore a close-fitting coat with blue and white stripes, a kerchief of the same color behind his helmet, a gold chain round his neck, and a costly sword beneath his left arm. "'I see,' said the prince, "'that thou alone, Yunana, art mindful of my honor. The officer covered with amulets bent to the earth. "'Tutmosis is indolent,' said the heir. "'Return to thy place, Yunana. Let the vanguard at least have a leader.' Then, looking at the suite which now surrounded him, as if it had sprung from under the earth on a sudden, he added, "'Bring my litter. I am as tired as a quarryman.' "'Can the gods grow tired?' whispered Eunana, still standing behind him. "'Go to thy place,' said Ramses. "'But perhaps thou wilt command me, O image of the moon, to search the ravines?' asked the officer in a low voice. "'Command, I beg thee.' for wherever I am my heart is chasing after thee to divine thy will and accomplish it. I know thou art watchful, answered Ramses. Go now, and look after everything. Holy Father, said Eunana, turning to the minister, I commend my most obedient service to thy worthiness. Barely had Eunana gone, when at the end of the marching column rose a still greater tumult. They looked for the heir's litter, but it was gone then appeared, making his way through the Greek warriors, a youth of strange exterior. He wore a muslin tunic, a richly embroidered apron, and a golden scarf across his shoulder. But he was distinguished above all by an immense wig with a multitude of tresses, and an artificial beard like cat's tails. That was Tutmosis, the first exquisite in Memphis, who dressed and perfumed himself even during marches. "'Be greeted, Ramses!' exclaimed the exquisite, 
pushing aside officers quickly. Imagine thy litter is lost somewhere. Thou must sit in mine, which really is not fit for thee, but it is not the worst. Thou hast angered me, answered the prince. Thou sleepest instead of watching the army. The astonished exquisite stopped. I sleep, cried he. May the man's tongue wither who invented that calumny. I, knowing that thou wouldst come, have been ready this hour past, and am preparing a bath for thee and perfumes. While thus engaged, the regiment is without a commander. Am I to command a detachment where his worthiness the minister of war is, and such a leader is present as Patrokles? Ramses was silent. Meanwhile Tutmosis, approaching him, whispered, In what a plight thou art, O son of the Pharaoh, without a wig, thy hair and dress full of dust, thy skin black and cracked, like the earth in summer. The queen, most deserving of honor, would drive me from the court were she to look at thy wretchedness. I am only tired. Then take a seat in my litter. In it are fresh garlands of roses, roast birds, and a jug of wine from Cyprus. I have kept also hidden in the camp, he said in a lower voice. Sonura. Is she here? asked the prince, and his eyes, glittering a moment before, were now in mist covered. Let the army move on, said Tutmosis. We will wait here for her. Ramses recovered himself. Leave me, tempter. The battle will come in two hours. What? A battle? At least the decision is to my leadership. Oh, laugh at it, smiled the exquisite. I would swear that the minister of war sent a report of it yesterday, and with it the petition to give thee the corps of Memphis. No matter if he did. Today I have no thought for anything but the army. In thee this wish for war is dreadful, war during which a man does not wash for a whole month so as to die in... Brr! But if thou couldst see Sinura, only glance at her. For that very reason I shall not glance at her, answered Ramses decisively. At the moment when eight men were bringing from beyond the Greek ranks the immense litter of Tutmosis for the use of Ramses, a horseman raced in from the vanguard. He dropped from his horse and ran so quickly that on his breast the images of the gods or the tablets with their names rattled loudly. This was Anua in great excitement. All turned to him, and this gave him pleasure, apparently. Erpatar, the loftiest lips, cried Unana, bending before Ramses, when, in accordance with thy divine command, I rode at the head of a detachment, looking carefully at all things, I noticed on the high road two beautiful scarabs. Each of these sacred beetles was rolling an earth ball toward the sands near the roadside. What of that? interrupted Ramses. Of course, continued Unana, glancing toward Herhor, I and my people, as piety enjoins, rendered homage to the golden symbols of the sun and halted. That augury is of such import that no man of us would make a step forward unless commanded. I see that thou art a pious Egyptian, though thou hast the features of a Hittite, answered the worthy Herhor, and turning to certain dignitaries standing near, he added, We will not advance farther by the highway, for we might crush the sacred beetles. Pentur, can we go around the road by that ravine to the right? We can, answered the secretary. That ravine is five miles long, and comes out again almost in front of Pi Belos, 
an immense loss of time, interrupted Ramses in anger. I would swear that those are not scarabs, but the spirits of my Phoenician usurers, said Tutmosis the Exquisite, not being able, because of their death, to receive money from me, they will force me now to march through the desert in punishment. The suite of the prince awaited the decision with fear, so Ramses turned to Herhor. What dost thou think of this, holy father? Look at the officers, answered the priest, and thou wilt understand that we must go by the ravine. Now Patrokles, leader of the Greeks, pushed forward and said to the heir, if the prince permit, my regiment will advance by the highway. My soldiers have no fear of beetles. Your soldiers have no fear of royal tombs, even, added the minister. Still it cannot be safe in them, since no one has ever returned. The Greek pushed back to the suite, confounded. Confess, holy father, hissed the heir, with the greatest anger, that such a hindrance would not stop even an ass on his journey. "'True, but no ass will ever be Pharaoh,' retorted the minister calmly. "'In that case thou, O minister, will lead the division through the ravine,' exclaimed Ramses. "'I am unacquainted with priestly tactics. Besides, I must rest. "'Come with me, cousin,' said he to Tutmosis, and he turned toward some naked hills. End of chapter 1